Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast universe of lore behind the Mass Effect games. We'll talk about all the details you may have missed, ask the hard questions, and more. All right, space travelers. I, what, what should I call our audience? You know, personally, I think <laughs> I think specters would work. Specters. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Everybody who listens to the show is a specter. So we've up we've up to the number of those in the across the universe. Uh, welcome, specters, to the Mass Effect Lorecast episode two. I'm your host, Tom, or Robots, and I'm here with Kung Fu Kangaroo. Can, do we want to use your other name? We talked about yeah, this. Yeah, we can use my other name. Yeah, we can. We can. Uh, so I have been thinking about, and I kind of want to put a, put some feelers out there about what chat thinks. Uh, my gamer tag and my online alias used to be N Seven Legend. Get this, N N Seven Legend, and like after the first episode, I kept calling him Kung Fu Kangaroo because that's what he is on our Discord, and uh, he was like, "Oh, by the way, I used to go by this name more often." And I was like, that's, that's perfect. That's the perfect name. And Seven Legend. Uh. Yeah, and it was uncanny. I think I changed my name maybe like back in December before they announced uh, Legendary Edition. I think that's when that was. It was shortly before they announced it. And I didn't even put the two and two together until we had already done the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. So N7 Legends or Sam. We'll just whatever. We'll just roll with it. But yeah, yeah, that's a really, really funny circumstance there. This episode, uh, we are talking about the first contact war, which underpins a lot of the story. I mean, this is this is the uh, the background to the setting that you basically walk into in the first game, right? Like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, it is. You find out like, oh, the aliens already have these opinions about humanity and humans. And this is why it's tough for Shepard, you know, trying to become a specter and all that stuff. And it has a lot to do with the, the events that happened at, during the first contact war. So we're going to dig into that in this episode. So um, N7 legend, <laughs> Sam, why don't you kick <laughs> us off? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I just want to say hello, welcome, Keila Salai, to my fellow Spectres. Um, So the first contact war, like Tom said, is really the hinge point of so many different events in the Mass Effect lore. It's the absolute crossroads, and it happens in 2157, 26 years before the events of Mass Effect 1. and it's called the first contact war because it is the first point when humanity makes contact with another intelligent alien civilization. Mm. And it all starts with the discovery of the Charon mass relay. Now, this relay was originally thought to be a moon of Pluto, and it was encased in ice in like 100 or hundreds of kilometers thick. Uh, and an exploratory science team made the discovery in 2147. But... It wasn't that surprising because just before then, 
the there was a science team that uncovered the Prothean ruins on Mars, uh, which some of our fans might uh, very well know about. And uh, those Prothean ruins on Mars held a small, relatively small data cache, which contained coordinates to the Charon mass relay. Interesting. And it's the only mass relay in our solar system, the Sol system. So, uh, wow. So a um, an ice. I mean, basically, this was an ice ball hundreds of kilometers thick ice ball floating around the moon. So it was almost like the moon, it looked like the moon had captured like a comet or something and it was rotating around it. Yeah. So it was rotating around, it was revolving, revolving uh, around, around yeah. uh, Pluto, uh, I believe. Um, so it was around Pluto and they thought it was like a moon of Pluto uh, until the evidence from the science team on Mars indicated that that might not be the case. And then an exploratory team discovered, well, um, it's actually an inactive piece of alien technology. And at that point, humanity didn't really know what mass relays were. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no idea. I'm sure. You know, like, what is this thing? Sure. And again, it needs to be reiterated that at this point, humanity didn't have any contact with any of the Citadel alien species. None of them. Yeah. I have to wonder what the uh, discovery of the protean ruins on Mars was like. I'm sure that yeah, that was made national yeah, national basis. news. Like, hey, we found something that was actually constructed by an intelligent life form on Mars. Like, what? <laughs> like, that's huge. I think, and I might be wrong, but I thought I remembered in in one of the games that that moment was discussed, and there was actually like some news shown on on like news channels, mm-hmm. and it was basically religious believer believers in any of the world's religions trying to reconcile their belief right. with the fact that we are definitely not alone in the world, and ancient astronaut theorists <laughs> came out of the woodwork, right? Of course, and they said wait a second, we might have been monitored. So our theories might be correct. Right. Maybe they helped us build the pyramids. Yeah, all of that stuff. Man, this is one of those questions that comes out. I have a background in religious studies and philosophy, and I've studied a lot of these things on my own over time. Just kind of dig into them. See, you know, see what see what floats when put in water and that kind of thing. And one of the one of the concepts about um, the difficulties of intelligent life across the universe when it comes to like prominent religions in the world, especially something like Christianity is that like the concept of Jesus dying for the sins of all humans. Well, does he, does he also die for the sins of aliens? Like, how does that work? You know, like if there's intelligent species out there that are, you know, on the same level as human beings, do they have souls? Like there, there's there's a lot of questions that this opens up. Um, So of course there would be uh, as with anything that happens among um, humans to further our understanding about the world, there is always people who deny it, who try to push back against it because it comes up against the things that they believe and especially the things that they believe that define who they are themselves. And that's the hardest stuff to deal with. So I can imagine that this would have this would have run deeply across many different people groups and had all sorts of different responses to this. Yeah, and it, it exacerbates some existing xenophobia in the world, but we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but it also go coincides with a theme that we were talking about last week, which was cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um mm-hmm. and so I, I imagine that if you lived in the Mass Effect universe, that discovery on Mars and then the subsequent discovery of the Charon mass relay 
would have presented some serious cognitive dissonance to you about what human what it means to be a human in the milky way yeah yeah. Um, well, we so. have we have traditionally, uh, due to science, moved further and further from seeing ourselves as the center of existence. Um, you know, you go back 2000 years and human beings are the center of God's creation. And then you get to Copernicus and all of a sudden we're not even the center of the solar system. And then you get to Galileo and you're like, OK, well, there's other planets and they have moons. So we may not even be the only real planetary body and then you get to like and we knew what planets were but we didn't know that they were necessarily terrestrial and had moons the same way that our planet did and then you get to modern science and it's like we're on some little arm of the milky way floating around in a gigantic universe with potentially billions of other galaxies on a scale that we can't even imagine in the middle of nowhere you know like we keep being less and less important seemingly and then you get to the point of like intelligent alien life who may have been around a lot longer than we have and it's like we're a whole lot of nobody <laughs> when it comes to and the universe that feeling is uncomfortable um yeah. it's very uncomfortable and i think the best microcosm that i can pull from my own personal experiences is if you grew up in small town america if you grew up in a small town and then you visited a big city let's say new mm. york city yeah all of a sudden you don't feel significant at all and That's you feel very insignificant. I hadn't thought about and that. And a lot of people don't like that. Yeah. But if you grew up in a big city and you go to a small town, then it's a completely reversed feeling. Right. All you feel quaint. Yeah. And there's yeah. also no privacy because there's no mm. anonymity. Mm -hmm. um, so it feels quaint, but, you know, no anonymity, no privacy. It's a very different feeling. It's interesting. Okay. Well, let's move on. Yeah. So. The human human humanity discovers the Charon mass relay. They mine it free. Uh, they excavate it from the hundreds of kilometers of ice, and then they try to send probes through the relay. That doesn't go too well. All of the probes that they send through lose contact. And so if you're one of the, uh, uh, I guess, alliance scientists, you're kind of scratching your head and going, ah, oh, crap, <laughs> this is going to mean that we got to send real people through this. Right, right. And I would imagine that you're also wondering, like, did this actually even work? Like, did this yeah. thing simply destroy them? Yeah. Or did it send people through black holes? You know, right. they didn't know anything. They, yeah. There was no way to know. Right. Did it convert them to some sort of energy? Like, well, what is what is this thing actually doing? Yeah. Holy man. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So talk about fear of the unknown, but there thankfully is a hero for humanity who steps up to the plate. His name is John Grissom. People might recognize that name off of the Grissom Academy in Mass Effect. We'll get into that in a different episode. Um, but John Grissom leads the exploration team through the relay. And it's a exploration team mixed with scientists and, uh, and military service members. And then they discover at the end, other end of that relay, they discover the Arcturus system. Mm -hmm. Arcturus so this is, should ring. So this is basically like, uh, oh, what was the TV show in the movie with uh, where they go through the portals and the go oh, old um, um, and Daniel Jackson. And what was the name of that freaking show? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Stargate, Stargate. Thank you, Kather. Yeah, this is basically Stargate, right? They like get they get some military people and some scientists together and send them through a portal, and then they're like, "Okay, let's figure out what's on the other side." Here we go. <laughs> and that's exactly what they do. And so, 
John Grissom, the team, they discover the Arcturus system. Arcturus should ring a bell because that is where they eventually construct Arcturus Station. Arcturus Station is the house of the Alliance Systems Parliament and the nerve center of the entire military framework I believe for the Alliance. Arcturus is the what second closest star? To I'm not entirely star? sure on that. It's something, or it's the second brightest. It's it's something like that. There, it has some sort of uh, significance in either its distance or its brightness in our sky. Um, so it, if it's the second closest, that would make sense too. It being something that's relatively closer to travel to, but a different star system. Yeah, and and so this isn't that far from the from our solar system. It's not that far, relatively speaking. Once the entire galaxy opens up to humanity's exploration, but it's far for humans. And so this relay, the Charon mass relay, it opens up the rest of the galaxy to humanity. This relay serves as a critical access point for all of humanity's future exploration and colonization throughout the stars in the Milky Way. Because the only way to there is through the Charon mass relay. That's the only way humanity has to to achieve uh, mass effect travel. Yeah, mass effect travel. I love the um, we need to talk about the title at some point, but this mass effect, like the mass of something, the effect on that mass in order to travel at a distance. Right. That's where it comes from. But then there's also like the symbolism of like a massive effect on the universe. Like anyway, so um. (laughs) <laughs> it's <on>. great writing <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's a really writing, good name but, it's a really good name when I you think, think about it yeah we should we should touch on that because that's the science around and the physics around which this whole lore is based uh-huh. is that these different species can travel incredible vast di- distances of time uh, of, of space in short amounts of time not because they can actually conventionally ach- achieve uh powerful engines but because they're relying on these mass relays which send them at ftl speeds which is faster than light travel right and they allow faster than light travel not by propelling them with such force but rather by altering the mass of the object so low that when you use the same amount of force it just sends it flying that's um, so it's still weird. How do you go faster than light, though? Anyway, um, yeah, like Arcturus, I just looked it up, is like 33 light years away, uh, which is relatively close for another star. But if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take you 33 years to get there. Like you'd spend most of your life traveling to this other star, right? Like, but yeah, but now they're moving faster than light. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing. One day we we should calculate the speed at which the Andromeda explorers would have had to travel oh, to man. get there in 633 years. Oh man. Yeah. That's, Oh, I'll have to look that up. Maybe, maybe we'll do that in another episode. I would love to also bring on somebody who uh, is a physicist, somebody with some actual background in this because there, there, um, there are studies happening now about ways to do faster than light travel, or at least, close to light travel without using vast amounts of energy to propel say a vehicle you know something with with mass to get up to that speed um and they think that there might be ways of actually achieving this uh by bending space and creating wormholes and things like that which has been science fiction uh but there may actually be a way to do that by putting the like whatever the vehicle is that you would be traveling in in some sort of bubble 
like a space-time bubble that doesn't work in space the same way that the things outside of the bubble work. Um, and, and there was an article that came out recently. One, one of the difficulties with traveling at uh, close to light speeds is that time slows down for you and continues traveling at, uh, at a regular rate for anyone else outside of that velocity. Um, so, for example, if I was to travel at 99% the speed of light to uh, Arcturus, and it, and it traveled 33 years and then traveled 33 years back. And I'm a very old man by this point. Right. Um, you guys would have been dead for like centuries, like that much time will have passed because I, I was traveling at close to the speed of light while you maintained in your current trajectory. It's, it's all mind bendy stuff, but it's really, really cool. And the other problem, logistically speaking, would be you don't know if the target that you're traveling to is going to be the same by the time you get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what we're seeing, like, so when you look up at the night sky, the star that you're seeing, if I look up at Arcturus, that is its location 33 years ago. That is not its current location because the light I'm seeing took 33 years to travel from that star to get to my eye, which is again mind boggling. The actual locations of everything you're looking up at in the sky are different from what you're actually seeing in different ways for each one, depending on how far away it is. It's like all of this stuff is so complex. So you were saying um, Charon is the name of this relay and that has some significance uh, mythologically. Yeah, it does. Um, and chat, Sharon, Karen, feel free yeah, however you to pronounce correct it. us. Yeah, yeah, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. And uh, I think mm -hmm. it's Charon. Um, Might be. Charon uh, was the ferryman in Greek mythology who would ferry dead souls across the River Styx. And Which so is I wonder really what interesting. That has. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, let's let's just play with it. You come across a mass relay which enables travel from one location to another right and um in greek mythology you don't have a heaven and a hell you just have a place of the dead and the place of the dead was a place of other it wasn't good or bad it was just where people went when they died and it wasn't generally seen as a happy place because people would rather not be dead it was also seen as the kind of kind of a place where uh, imaginary mythical kinds of things could happen. The rules of reality were a little bit different. So it it kind of makes sense that this mass relay symbolically is taking people from their home, from Earth to a place that is other, that's different from anything we've experienced before. Um, but it also makes you wonder if it uh if it's prescient if it's a uh, um foreshadowing the the concept of like the dangers of interacting with this mass relay and the war the death and the the dangers to humanity that this might actually bring about as well and spoiler alert you know if you haven't played the original trilogy please uh avert your ears to this <laughs> over your ears <laughs> close your ear flaps <laughs> Because as as you're saying, you know, is it foreshadowing and we're talking about Greek mythology and how Charon was the ferryman of the, you know, across the river Styx, leading people into the afterlife. I start to think that, well, the mass relays were created actually by the Reapers. Yeah. 
Yeah. They weren't created by the Protheans. And the Reapers are, are they not shepherds of death? They are shepherds of death. So that totally makes sense, which is interesting because I don't know that you get very much of that lore in the first game. You don't. You don't really at all. So, like, that concept, like, th- this is foreshadowing and revealing things that didn't even make it into the story until the later games in the series. Right. Yeah. Because that was like a big reveal in two, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was. It could have actually been at the end of one. But I remember the reveal was that the Protheans weren't the ones who created the Citadel. Actually, you know what? I remember now, now that I'm speaking about it, I remember. This is the way this works. You start talking about it. it. Yeah. And then things come back. (laughs) So I think it happened on the planet Ilos in the first game, which is the very last planet before the end of the game, Mm -hmm. before the end of the main story. And you speak with a Prothean VI and virtual intelligence. Um, and you learn that basically this Prothean VI was meant to be a repository of all Prothean knowledge in case the Protheans didn't win the war against the Reapers. And you learn that the Citadel is the conduit. It's the conduit through which Sovereign, Saren's uh, Reaper ship, uh, you know, a sentient ship, can come through dark space into Mil- into the Milky Way and herald all of the rest of the Reapers in. Sovereign is supposed to be the, the herald of the rest of the Reapers, and he's supposed to get here through the conduit, which is the Citadel. And the Reapers built the Citadel. The Reapers built the mass relays. Mm-hmm. And, they, and I think it might give it to you in, in, in pieces along the way, but I'm pretty sure the reveal starts on Ilos and Mass Effect 1. But basically that the Reapers uh, were the architects of all future intelligent life's progression, technologically speaking. Yeah. Oh, man, that's really cool. Really, really cool stuff. Jessica Starr says, like a giant relay in chat. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a giant relay among uh, a web of other relays that can go even further. Yeah, the Reapers seem to be really obsessed with transportation infrastructure. So, (laughs) well, it makes sense. They're trying to I mean, they're they're harvesting, right? They're harvesting the galaxy. So they need uh, a chain of of connections in order to reach out and harvest their crop and then bring it back to where they they want it. You know, they they have to have infrastructure for that. So it totally makes sense. But first, they got to fatten the pigs up first, right? Before they harvest them. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because they got to they got to make sure that each civilization is to a certain amount of intelligence and, and, and achievement and then they do it. But I guess that's beside the point. Um, another fun fact about the Charon Relay, kind of going in hand in hand with uh, the Reapers being the shepherd of death, is that the Charon Relay doesn't just serve as the uh, critical access point for the soul systems. Uh, transportation to the rest of the galaxy. But the Charon Relay also serves as the first and crucial relay target for the Crucible's activation in Mass Effect 3. And some might remember in Mass Mm -hmm. Effect 3, the Crucible is the weapon, the Prothean-designed weapon that Shepard and the Alliance and all the different species of the galaxy build to defeat the Reapers. And the Citadel is above Earth at that point. So the relay that the Crucible needs to blast its energy through to get to the rest of the galaxy is the Charon Relay. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, man. Um, Captain Logan's <laughs> people are chiming in chat. Thank you for being here. By the way, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the episode. We are live every Sunday night at 1030 
Eastern, 10.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Pacific um, at twitch.tv slash robots radio. So if you want to come join us live and chime in, we've got Buddy Destiny saying and it ensured that people would live near the relays. Right. That makes sense. Uh, Jessica Starr says, uh, yes, using it like a hook to help guide the path of any organic development. But that's probably for a future episode. Yeah, this is, these are all really cool uh, concepts. And we'll be we'll be digging into a lot of the stuff as we get further and further into the series. And then, of course, Captain Logan chimes in and says, Tom left me to come here for a Mass Effect podcast because we just he he does the cyberpunk podcast we do before this. But yes, yes, Logan, I have more than just your podcast friend. Um, <laughs> so. All right. Um, Sam, anything else we want to cover before we go to the middle of the show? Uh, well, I guess, you know, uh, would you like to do this? Show us your shepherds now or keep well, that let's, until let's do that break. in the middle. We'll, we'll do the middle of the show. We're going to do a mid break. We've got a, a new segment that we're going to launch today. And then uh, after the mid break, we'll be back to talk a little bit more about the actual war that comes about after finding the, the mass relay. So here we go. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign, and this station is mine. I like the sound of that. So uh, here we are in the middle of the show. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to all of our friends who are currently watching on Twitch. We are glad you guys are here for the podcast. Um, not a whole lot to say. We don't have a Patreon, Patreon or anything launched yet. Uh, we might do that in the future. Um, there are some things that we, uh, Sam and I will be discussing about fun ways that we can thank you guys for helping to support the show. Um, but the biggest thing that you can do for us right now, especially because we are a new show, we're a new podcast and it's always tough to get a new podcast up and going and building an audience. First of first and foremost, and these things are absolutely free. Tell your friends if you have friends who are into Mass Effect, who are getting excited about the legendary edition and the new games coming out in the future, who want to kind of brush up on their lore and just listen to a podcast, you know, two guys talking about this stuff, then please share the show with them. And also, if you are enjoying the show and you want to uh, hear your words read out on a future episode, then leaving a five star review on Apple Podcasts, if you have an account, would be phenomenal because that really does help us get noticed by people who are searching for podcasts. So those two things would be amazing. And we would love to thank you on a future episode for doing that. Um, we also have a new segment here for the middle of the show called show us your shepherd. <laughs> what? So we're starting with um, Sam. We're starting with your shepherd, right? Yeah, that's right. So we're going to start this new segment called show us your shepherd or shepherds. shepherds. If you got multiple shepherds, show us them all. But uh, we're going to start with mine. And this is going to come from my most recent playthrough, which I just started last week following last week's episode. And as we discussed back then, I started for the first time a female shepherd. That is Commander K. Shepherd. Um, and we're going to go through her name, you know, as I just said, the class background and psych profile, some of her unique personality characteristics and role playing facts and some of the critical decisions that this shepherd has made. Now, we'll go through each of those. If you send in your shepherd and and let us know line by line, name, class, background, as I stated, and uh, send us a screenshot of that shepherd as well. And uh, we will try to bring that up and go through. But 
first, let's go over Commander K. Shepard. Right. So up on the screen, if you're watching on the live show or on the Robots Radio YouTube channel, just search Robots Radio YouTube. It'll come right up. You can watch this show on YouTube as well. And uh, here is K. Shepard. This is Sam's new Shepard. Uh, this is your first time playing uh, a Fem Shep, right? A lady, a lady Shep. It is. It's my first time playing Fem Shep. And let me just say... Kay Shepard is such a badass and yeah, she is. <laughs> I love it. I prefer I Fem Shep. Yeah. I love Jennifer Hale's voice acting and some of the sarcastic remarks that, that Shepard can make just are so de- delivered so well by uh, Jennifer Hale. And um, so her name's commander Kay Shepard. The name is actually, it holds a little bit of sentimental significance to me. Uh, Kay was my mother's maiden name. Uh, and my mother was in the Navy actually. And she, Uh when she was in the Navy, she was, it was in the 19, it was in the late 1970s. And at that point, the United States did not allow women on aircraft carriers yet. So she Hmm. had to serve on a British one. So I thought, what better way to pay homage to my mom than to make the first film chef that I play, uh, named after her. So she's like your badass intergalactic mom. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's certainly uh, one of my role models. And I'm going to try to I'm going to try to avoid role playing Shepard as her. <laughs> <laughs> right. The name inspiration does come from it, but I'll, I'll try to avoid it. Um, but Kay Shepard is a vanguard. Um, however, there is a little twist to that, because if you've played Mass Effect one more than once and it's the same in the other games. So um, if you've played each of the games more than once, you actually get to choose a bonus skill when you make a new character. So I chose the sniper skill line. And so she's a vanguard, but she also has that long range capability, which if anyone remembers in Mass Effect 1, vanguards are biotic combat specialists, but they only receive weapons training in shotguns and pistols, as you can see on the screen. Mm-hmm. And so that really limits the range, their effective range. Um, so I kind of wanted to pick a skill that would help mitigate that long range deficiency because I'm playing this playthrough on insanity difficulty. Oh man. Oh my God. It is already so hard. I just got to the Citadel. I just did the first Korra's Den mission. I died to a Krogan very brutally. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard. And, uh, she, so her background, she is a spacer. She's got the spacer background. So that means both of her parents were in the military and her mother still is, uh, captain Hannah Shepard is Shepard's mother. And you can only interact with captain Hannah Shepard. If you've chosen the spacer background, the psych profile I've decided to give her, which is something you choose in character creation in mass effect one, the psychological profile is soul survivor. That means that she endured a mission on a the planet of a where she went in with a 50 Marine strike team. And when they landed, Thresher Maws attacked the entire group and actually killed everyone except for her. It's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, rough day. Rough, rough <laughs> so, day. Yeah. So that's the sole survivor uh, background and some just unique personality characteristics I've given Kay Shepard is she's a really sarcastic badass, uh, but, you know, and it's so trite, it's overplayed, but she's got a heart of gold. Um, So ultimately, she's going to do the right thing, but she's not going to be like, you know, in your confines of politeness about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. maybe that's chaotic good. Maybe it's neutral good. 
Not sure what alignment that would be, but K Shepard's it. Um, because I'm so early in this game, no critical decisions really that this Shepard has made yet. Um, mm-hmm. So that's about it. So that's my Shepard. That's Commander K Shepard. And uh, we'd love to see your guys' Shepard or Shepherds. And tell us, again, tell us the name, the class, the background and psych profile, some unique char- personality characteristics, and some critical decisions that Shepard has made. Yeah, and if you're not on our Discord already, join the Robots Radio Discord. Um, You can just search Robots Radio Discord. It'll come right up. If you go to robotsradio.net, there's a link at the top. If you're in chat, you can do exclamation discord and it's right there and there's a channel for the podcast and you can share your screenshots and your descriptions on there or you can tweet at us at mass effect cast on twitter and send us your send us your shepherds shepherd your shepherds to us That's, personally i'm really looking forward to this I'm, oh i think i'm be really great. looking yeah shepherds i always love seeing it i'm i'm excited for may to come so i can jump back into the remastered version of the game and build my own shepherd and i think i might try to design the weirdest looking face i possibly can so i'm excited about that uh maybe i'll go total renegade i haven't gone renegade Maybe I'll have to do that and just like, you know, Mark Mir actually said that every game he plays the first playthrough where it's an RPG game, the first playthrough he does, he just goes total bad person uh-huh. because then the next one that he does, he's good person and he feels like he can redeem himself. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the first time I played through Fallout 3, I went very good which typically most people go good like stats show most people go good on their playthroughs uh but then when i played new vegas my wife jumped into it before i did so i watched some of her playthrough before i made a character and started playing so i made (laughs) i made a really bad character that was just like he was basically just like a raider who was super dumb his intelligence was really low but he was very charming um but i (laughs) because he's a raider he has to have a really dumb raidery name so his name was bitch fist which is a terrible name it's a terrible name but yeah he was a really bad dude um anyway let's uh let's move on to the rest of the show because we've got more lore to talk about hey guardians we are the destiny show podcast a weekly podcast about all things destiny 2 we invite amazing guests from the destiny community to share their stories and discuss the latest topics from the world of destiny Check us out on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or live on Twitch every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We will see you starside. Spit it out, or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. All right, so we're back. <laughs> let's. <laughs> sorry about the name, there, friends. Um, let's let's talk about uh, contact here. Uh, actually, in interacting with other people, other races, yeah. other. I mean, th- uh, man, I can, can you imagine being there? Like, I don't. Well, go into go into the details. I'm. Yeah. I'll I'll start daydreaming in my mind about like what that must be like. Actually, like seeing a Tarian for the first time, or like, yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> So basically the humans mind open, they, they care on relay and then they started going. <laughs> so they had a mass reactivation bonanza. Uh, they were reactivating every relay they found because they thought this is awesome. Let's keep exploring. Let's, you know, just go to the ends of the galaxy. And it turns out when you do that, some aliens do take notice. 
the Turians took notice when the humans reactivated Relay 314. And that was because Relay 314 was intentionally deactivated by the Council because of the Rachni Wars. The Rachni Wars might ring a bell to some, and we're definitely going to have to do our own episode about the Rachni Wars, because man, is that a crossroads for the entire lore. Uh, but the Rachni are a highly intelligent, highly hostile hive mind insect species. Yeah, so they, they basically uh, shook the hive. Right. Yeah, they sh- yeah. <laughs> yep, they kicked the bees nest. They kicked the bees um, nest, yeah. Ooh. And so when humanity reactivated that relay, the council kind of went, whoa. Whoa, <laughs> Not again. nope, nope. Yeah, so the Turians, you know, the, the Turians see this as just an ignorant species going around flipping switches willy-nilly, right? Violating intergalactic law, or galactic law. Which is kind of uh, true. And they, <laughs> it was kind of true, yeah, true, objectively speaking. Yeah, just, yeah <laughs> let's see what's over here. Let's turn this thing on. Yeah, there's a bunch of intelligent primates not understanding what the hell they were doing. <laughs> yeah. And humanity sees this as uh, who is this super scary a- alien species now firing at us? Because the Turians don't negotiate. Instead, they just open fire. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but this is humanity's first contact, you know, with an, with an intelligent alien species. And some humans even believe it are. Are these the Protheans? Are the Protheans attacking us right now? Because they don't know who the Turians are yet. They literally didn't communicate. There was no diplomatic relations. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> it, you know, though, like, if <laughs> this, is a, this is a thing that humans do and, and have done for a long time, when we view other species as being lesser than us and a danger, what do we do? We kill it, right? We don't. We don't assume that the other species can communicate. We don't try to negotiate. We just we just get rid of them because, oh, this thing's dangerous and it's not as smart as we are, obviously. Just kill it. Get rid of it. Like, yeah, yeah. Be rid of the nuisance uh, yeah. <laughs> to call pest control. Um, and that is a sad stain on humanity's past, I think. Um, but how ironic that we are faced with it in the Mass Effect universe on the receiving end mm-hmm. with the Turians not exactly giving us any mercy or grace. Right. And speaking of mercy and grace, instead of um, engaging directly, because it appears that the Turians have the upper hand both technologically and in terms of sheer military power, humanity starts sending these probes with fusion nuclear warheads attached to them. <laughs> into Turian space. Um, okay. <laughs> That's the first decision that you gotta go right to nukes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like but a bad Shang-Chi. action movie, right? Like, we've come across aliens. They're all dangerous. Nuke all of them now. <laughs> Vaporize them. Vaporize them. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so so eventually the closest human colony to Relay 314, which is Shanxi, eventually gets surrounded by Turian military forces and those Turian forces begin an orbital siege because the garrison of, of alliance forces on Shanxi refuses to surrender. So the Turian forces start with their orbital siege and it's such that there's no uh, in-orbit alliance resistance, and it's brutal. It's overwhelming force. 
it is the Turian version of Blitzkrieg. And Mass Effect Evolution, which is part of that external media that I was talking about before. Right. According to Mass Effect Evolution, it says that entire city blocks were vaporized just to target even small marine fire teams. Entire city blocks. This is yeah. This is just like a scorched earth strategy. This is a just destroy everything. Make sure you get rid of the nuisance. Yeah, this and that is, should actually speak to how bad the Ragni Wars were. Yeah, yeah. This is like um, I don't know. Like uh, back in the day when they first started doing um, uh, like killing bugs with um pesticides and things like that, bugs and rats. They didn't realize how bad the pesticides were for like the plants or the other animals. And so they ended up killing way more than the, just the bugs. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, because the Turians don't really know who these human beings are. All they know is that it's some slightly intelligent primate <laughs> race. Uh, uh, right. And they are uh, attempting to bring back the Rachni, who the galactic, uh, who the city, <laughs> the city council just spent 1000 years trying to battle. I think it was. Um, yeah, we're going to have to do our own episode about the Ragnarok Wars. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, that's a long, that's a long war. But basically any human forces were, uh, killed from above and that led to a starvation from the orbital blockade and the eventual occupation by Turian forces of Shanxi. And that was following the surrender by General Williams, who should ring a bell because General Williams is the grandfather of Ashley Williams, Gunnery Chief Ashley Williams, mm. who is one of the squad mates from mm-hmm. Mass Effect 1. And depending on your choices in the first game, she can come back in 2 and 3. Interesting. Now, I want to pause for a little bit. This isn't in the show notes, Tom, but uh-huh. did you play Mass Effect 1 far enough to get to the critical decision of Caden or Ashley? And if you did, yes. who did you pick? Yes. Uh, man, I'm thinking back a long way. This is why I need to play through the games again, because it's been years since I played one, especially. Um, I think I went Caden. But I don't I don't remember why or what my justification was for the t- at the time. But I think I went Caden. Yeah, pretty sure. So a lot of people who choose Caden, they choose Caden because Ashley has some strong xenophobic slash racist vibes. Which makes sense Uh, because her grandfather was attacked by a bunch of aliens and had to surrender. Yeah, like it totally makes sense. Yeah. And she feels a very deep need to overcorrect for the bad reputation that her family gets from General Williams' surrender. He's actually like made a total pariah in the military for his surrender. Wow. And so is so is his family. It's a great stain upon their entire family's reputation. And Ashley spends her whole life trying to rectify that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll go back to the, the Turians. They become very arrogant. They become cocky because this whole military campaign against the humans hasn't really cost them anything. And the only real problems that they've run into at this point have been, how do we get food to our soldiers that are doing the orbital blockade? Yeah, I supply. Mean, I mean, that's supply that's issues. It. That's real, like if that's supply your only thing. problem with a war, then you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No infrastructure issues, uh, telecommunication issues, none of thing, nothing. Uh, only Casualties. Food. Yeah. Just, and, just getting food. Yeah. Yeah, and then out of the blue, well, to the Turians, out of the blue, uh, no pun intended, 
Admiral Castani Drescher, who leads the second fleet of the Alliance, just comes in and totally flanks this Turian blockade, kicks it out of Shang-Chi and its orbit. This is a huge political and morale victory for humanity. Huge, absolutely enormous, because up until this point, humanity was getting wiped the floor with left and right. I mean, it was just overwhelming force. It didn't look good. And uh, if I were to live in, the, in that universe, I'd be seriously afraid that the Turians were coming for Earth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because at this point, it looks like they're they're able to just stomp us out. You know, like what's to stop them from just removing us completely? Oh, yeah. Complete war of the world's scenario. Right. Um, and it almost becomes that because this amazing tactical move by Admiral Castani Drescher and the second fleet does inflame tensions. The Turians might have gotten caught by surprise, but they're a very prideful race and they're very highly militaristic and autocratic. They're not going to let this go. Uh, so this inflames the tensions into the point where the Turians are planning a full scale planetary war which may or may not include earth <laughs> with humanity mm -hmm. and the humans are also planning the same thing <laughs> so this almost extrapolates into like a completely different mass effect trilogy oh yeah yeah had this gone that direction we would the stories would be completely different um also uh, if this was the main focus that was of what was going on here, would the universe have even been ready for what was about to come? Absolutely not. And I think that's kind of what the Reapers were counting on. Um, yeah. I think the Reapers, Sovereign, uh, Harbinger, they make comments about how every intelligent race uh, or series of races in the Milky Way, no matter how intelligent they are, they always fighting amongst themselves. Right. And it distracts them. And they right. can't work together. Right. And that's like... Isn't that like one of the main themes of all of the Mass Effect games? Teamwork, working together, cooperation. Yeah, this is I mean, this is a major theme in role playing games in general. Uh, even uh, like uh, obviously I do a lot of podcasts in the uh, Fallout Lorecast. We've been talking about the different groups in Fallout 76 in Appalachia and the reason why they're all dead at the start of the game. And it's because they couldn't figure out how to work together. Had they been able to work together, they would have been able to stand up to this, the problems that had come, they had all the, all the solutions they needed. They just needed to cooperate and they didn't, and they all died. So yeah, this is, um, this theme is very common. I mean, it's a, it's a common human theme throughout history. This idea that like, if we could just stop fighting each other, we could all be living these amazingly wonderful lives, but we can't. We, we just keep on figuring out reasons to justify hurting other people and, and considering them other instead of including them, you know, just because just because they talk differently or they look differently or they they live their lives in slightly different ways. We can't seem to get along. And it's it's one of those things that like, I don't know if, if humanity could figure this out. The whole world would be a much better place. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the real world problems and why we can't solve them because we're too busy fighting with each other. And I'm getting depressed over here. But yeah, yeah. But that's but that's this is this is the wonderful thing about fiction is that fiction can address these issues. It dresses it up in a little bit of a different outfit with, you know, like funny aliens and humans and those kinds of things. But it's addressing real world issues in ways that actually matter and offering solutions like let's 
let's see what happens if we don't do this, <laughs> you know, like what happens if we don't let leadership that is, you know, all for themselves and uh, only does things that the wealthy want or, you know, like if let's say what happens if we just do things a different way? Well, where does that go? It, it allows us to play these thought experiments out in a story to see what what could possibly occur from them. So it's right. And what and there's what a real value. You, yeah. What happens if humanity cooperates on the galactic community communal scale by yeah. participating in the council? You know, as opposed to uh, walking around and, and bullying people and wanting your way. Right. You know? Right. So. So right at this point, when tensions are the highest, when the Turians are planning a full scale planetary war between humanity and Turians and when the human beings are doing the same thing, when these nukes on these probes are deep in Turian space and the Turians have yet to find out about them. Mm-hmm. The council steps in and the council negotiates peace before this massive quagmire. And so they negotiate peace reluctantly. And the anniversary is actually called Armistice Day. But hey, there you go. <laughs> so they negotiate peace. And believe it or not, all of this only happens in like a matter of or two or two months. It's a very short time frame. Um, less than half a year and so this is all happening very quickly and yet the fallout is enormous so this is how humanity learns of the citadel it's how humanity learns of the existence of the asari the volus the salarians it's how humanity learns of this entire galactic community which has been cooperating and existing since long before human beings ever understood what a telescope was yeah or or crawled out of the um out of the jungle (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah and seriously they've been around for you know tens of thousands of years before humanity Mm -hmm. um so and as part of the fallout of this short but very impactful uh military conflict the turians are ordered to pay reparations to the alliance and to the, specifically to the Alliance colony of Shanxi. But humans end up being viewed as the aggressors, interestingly enough. Even though the Turians were the ones who fired first, human beings are viewed as the aggressors because human beings never, like the, the Alliance never apologized for activating Relay 314. Mm. So human beings are, are viewed as these bullies, these aggressors who are going around, you know, as I said, flipping switches with no <laughs> shamelessly, you mm-hmm. know, no, no apologies. Uh, and it results in a massive sense of distrust for each other between humanity and the Turian hierarchy and xenophobia just skyrockets. Yeah. This yeah, I- leads to the groups like Cerberus and, and Terra Firma rising and gaining a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And Tom, did you have something you wanted to say about xenophobia? Oh, I, I can just imagine uh, in a situation like that where not only do you have uh, human beings now becoming aware of multiple species of aliens that are all different, and the fact that they've all been working together for centuries, for millennia, you know, like uh, the amount of like again, it's it's that other thing of like okay, let's let's shrink the universe just a little bit more and show how insignificant we are. Like all of these things have been happening out here in this universe and we've not even been aware of it. Well, how do we, how do we even get a seat at that table? You know, like, 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 is it 
does it make sense to ask permission to do things or to just go do them on our own? Because who's going to even listen to us? You know, like that kind of feeling. Right. It's like going back to school on Monday and finding out that there was a massive party and everyone was invited except you. Right. <laughs> you didn't right. find out. Right. Well, they, they must not think much of us to invite us. But no doubt they don't think much of you. You can barely get to the moon and Mars. You know, like you're not you're not a space traveling civilization yet. Like, yeah, like it's 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 the equivalent of inviting a bunch of uh, nations across across the world to join the United Nations, but ignoring the tribes of the Amazon. Right. Like. Like nobody thinks of, oh, well, we should invite the tribes of the Amazon to represent themselves in the United Nations. Well, and they've never even traveled outside of their local area. They don't. Like, we don't even understand the language they speak, you know, like, like they have no concept of a global order of of the way the world works or anything. Like, why would we invite them to the table? They've, they've got nothing yeah. to add, you know, like. And, he, and that is the attitude towards humanity in Mass Effect. Uh, that is the attitude for even a while after humanity is introduced to the council. And keep in mind, this means that. In the Mass Effect, in Mass Effect 1, at the very beginning of the game, when you get to the Citadel, mm -hmm. humanity only arrived there 26 years ago. Mm -hmm. 26 yeah. years. Yeah. What is that to an Asari? Right, that is right, nothing. right. Yeah, yeah. Like last week. Right, right. Yeah, to some of these alien alien races, that's that's no time at all. Yeah. And, and even, even among Africa. human beings, 26 years is barely a generation. Like that's yeah, not 20. that long. I mean, you, you 26 years. Think about it. 26 years ago was 1994. The internet was new, but other than that, like we still had cars, we still had planes, we still had radios, we still had, you know, computers were things like we, you could play video games. Like the world was different, but it wasn't that different. There just wasn't yeah. an internet yet, you know, like, and so 26 years and already humanity is demanding a seat at the table. Humanity is demanding a seat on the council, and there's only three races on that council. That's the Asari, the Salarians, and the Turians. And yeah. there are other races that have been waiting around thousands of years. Right, right. Polis, <laughs> the Elcor, my personal favorite. <laughs> the, you know, like the Hanar. These are all races that have been cooperating, and I only just learned this when I was streaming the other day, but the Volus, who... Uh, many of you might recognize from their, you know, breathing apparatus, the ch -ch -ch, that kind of thing. And they look like gelatinous blobs. Oh, no, not, not that one. <laughs> That's the Darth I mean, Vader's. It's, it's similar. Yeah, it's yeah. similar. It's similar. Um, and they are responsible for the entire framework of the galactic economy. Yeah. That's nuts. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> So they're responsible of that, and even they don't get a seat at the council. So it creates some resentment among us, but namely, it creates resentment among the First Contact Wars veterans. And mm. one of those is Saren Arterius. Saren Arterius is the antagonist of Mass Effect 1, the rogue specter who becomes way too close to the Reapers and eventually becomes indoctrinated by them. Yeah. Uh, man, you're bringing back memories. I may cannot get here fast enough because I need to play through it, but I want to play the new one. And I'm, I'm going to play both. I'm, I'm replaying the series now. 
and then I'll, you know, like I'll, I'll transfer yeah. K Shepard into the new one. Yeah. Um, I know we'll, me. We'll I know goes. me the whole time I'm playing. I'm going to be like, Oh, this would be like, this will look so much better in a month. I should just wait. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just gonna have to wait. You know, it'd be sweet. I don't know if, if they're going to do it, but it'd be really cool if you could like transfer your mass effect three Shepard directly into the mass effect one of legendary uh-huh, edition. Oh yeah. You kind of bring them back around. Yeah. Yeah. Full circle. Oh, huh. Yeah. Uh, I don't see why you couldn't. It would have the same kind of, you know, uh, mostly it's it's uh, the details of how they look and then, the, you know, the, the choices you made for their character. Right. And then you yeah, just have to unlevel them back to zero or whatever. Yeah. Or maybe they could do like a here's a reward for being a Bioware fan for so long. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. Maybe like you keep all that. the scars and stuff on his face. <laughs> the cybernetic scars, the cybernetic scars and stuff. Yeah, that'd be great. And why are you? Why are you so beat up? Oh, you'll never believe me. <laughs> rough three years. It's been a. It's been a rough. What are you talking about? You'll find out. <laughs> what if it was all just the vision that Shepard receives from the Prothean Beacon, yes, Eden Prime? Yeah. That, the whole trilogy was just that. It was just a dream, but then it plays out for real yeah. a second time, slightly different because you make slightly different choices. <laughs> he, he knows now what to do and what not to, what do. Not to do or he, um, he thinks he does but then oh crap i made other choices and those didn't turn out good this time either yeah so the xenophobia is at an all-time high between both the turians and the human beings and then the turian hierarchy partners with the alliance in a good faith move in an action to heal distrust. And together, both of those militaries create the SSV Normandy, SR-1, mm-hmm. which is the exploratory recon vessel, which Commander Shepard and Captain Anderson are on. And uh, so that is the ship in Mass Effect 1. Um, spoiler alert, it gets shot down at the beginning of Mass Effect 2. <laughs> so then Cerberus has to rebuild it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically almost the same, right? After they rebuild it. It's not, I mean, the outside looks very similar, right? It's an upgrade. It's a it's, big upgrade. The outside looks different just because they put the Cerberus logo or some branding. Right, but it. like the shape of the ship is... Oh, yeah. It's yeah, it's almost all the same. indistinguishable, yeah. Um, yeah, you know what? This is a question we'll have to dig into in the future. I've always wondered why it was called the Normandy. I mean, Normandy is known for World War II, uh you know, the one of the the beaches or the, the series of beaches that we uh, as the allies, uh, Americans and uh, the British and, um, you know, the allies invaded uh, in order to get back into mainland Europe. Um, but this is an exploratory ship. This isn't a battleship. Yeah, with with our Mistis Day appearing after uh, as the commemoration as the end of the first contact war i do wonder if it was just a nod to world war ii because the writers are big fans of military history yeah maybe that's it yeah i, I always wondered if that was a uh, symbolic of something and then never quite it never quite made sense sense to me in a you know foreshadowing kind of way like the ship was going to lead some sort of assault on an enemy position that was otherwise unable to be accessed or you know something like that now that that the ship does lead the charge when attacking Sovereign in Mass Effect 1, when Sovereign's attached to the Citadel. Mm -hmm. I think it is the Normandy that just leads the charge and blasts right through Sovereign. That could be Um, it. I'll have to to pay attention to that when we play through again. Maybe that's it. 
Yeah, I think maybe that's it. Uh, I'd love to have one of the writers on the show, Drew Karpishin. If you're listening, <laughs> if please you're listening. email us. Please let us know. <laughs> um, but not everyone on board the SSV Normandy is a fan of aliens, even though the ship was created as this, you know, communal effort of, you know, kumbaya circle. We're all friends here. Not everyone on board, like Navigator Presley, he's one of them. He doesn't really trust aliens. He makes that very apparent from the very beginning of Mass Effect 1 when he goes on and on about how Nihilus, the Turian Spectre, who's there to evaluate Commander Shepard for the Spectres, Mm -hmm. shouldn't be trusted. Mm -hmm. Um, And Pinnacle Station. I don't know if any of you played this DLC for Mass Effect 1, but it was a DLC where it was basically like a survival trial thing, where if you could survive long enough, you got actual better armor, and if you got the top score, you got like the best armor in the game. Well, the cap, the admiral who commands Pinnacle Station is Taddeus Ahern. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. But he's a veteran of the first contact war. He's actually a hero for having held off the Turians for longer than I think it was five minutes in a completely undefensible position with zero cover and two defense turrets. And that's it. And he's a hero. He's a war hero. Uh And yet he trains Turians on Pinnacle Station. So he has some gripes about it and he's a little gruff around the edges. But ultimately, that's what he does. And he's happy about what he does. Hmm. Well, some people can grow (laughs) and, and learn to be better people. Imagine that. Imagine Even that. grizzled veterans. Even grizzled veterans. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just as a, like a fun fact about the first contact war, notable human veteran, uh, Captain Anderson, Captain David Anderson. He's definitely one of them. Uh, there's a lot of stuff written about David Anderson, the external media, the books. Definitely check it out. Alec Ryder, who is the Pathfinder's father in Andromeda. Uh, Alec Ryder is a veteran of the first contact war. I didn't know that actually until looking up uh, this, the note, the notes for this show and Eva Corre name ring a bell, Tom, Eva Corre. No, it's really obscure. No, no, so that's it, it okay. Doesn't. That's okay. It's, it's a little bit obscure. So Eva Corre is the body model for Edie. When oh. Edie gets the body, it's actually Eva Corre's Android body that tried to kill Ashley or Caden, whoever you have okay. in Mass Effect 3. So then the mad scientist, you know, cyborg that Edie then hacks into and then just uses her body for, I don't huh. know, for, for, for combat purposes. Oh, man. No, this is good. I'll have to pay attention to this stuff when I, when I go through the playthrough. And Dr. Chalk was is too. Um, but there's a fun fact that basically if Shepard saves the council in Mass Effect 2, in one of the elevators which was a crucial part of Mass Effect 1. Uh, if, if I'm sorry, if, if Shepard saves the council in Mass Effect 1, then in Mass Effect 2, you hear some dialogue, some background dialogue over one of the elevators or one of the planes or however, however it happens, that basically the Turian hierarchy agrees to pay the remainder of its reparations and more to veterans, or to, to the families of deceased veterans of humans that served in the first contact war. So there's a little bit more trust between the hierarchy and humanity that way. And if Shepard does not save the council at the end of mass effect one, it goes totally awry. <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> and 
they talk about military buildups between the edges of Turian space and human humanity space. And it it almost looks like there's going to be another conflict there. Yeah. Um, so that's it. You know, that's, that's the contact war. Um, I tried to give a brief overview, but there are so many different rabbit holes that you can go down from the, the, the first contact war, just because it is the crossroads for the entire rest of the, the original trilogy. You know, it's how humanity gets introduced to the galactic stage. Yeah, it's uh, I, again to to be in a situation like that. And I mean, and this is something in our own reality that could happen at some point. You know, like we don't have solid proof or evidence of intelligent alien life out there. Every time we've looked for it, we've pretty much come up nil. You know, I mean, there are some people out there who will say, oh, but UFOs are real and all, all of that stuff. But in scientific circles, we've not been able to confirm it, or at least it hasn't been released to the public. Um, but can you imagine being in a situation like this and coming across, you know, finding, hey, these are real other intelligent creatures and they've been around a lot longer than us, which is 100 percent possible. You know, the universe is very old. Our star wasn't even born until the universe was something like seven billion years along. Uh, it's there's a lot of potential for coming across things across our universe that were there a long time before we were um or the remains of other aliens so just can you imagine that can you imagine trying to talk to an intelligent species trying to communicate with something that i mean do, do they even use sound waves to communicate like we do is it all body language is it you know is there some way of you know that we haven't even considered are they are they so advanced technologically that they are mostly bionic by this point and they are very little you know, organic matter left, you know, there, there's so many questions and so many potential things that could occur. Are, are they even sized on the same scale? We are right. Like, are they even three dimensional? Are they even three dimensional? <laughs> do they exist in the same you know way that we do? Um, do they breathe there? Are they, are they carbon based? There's so many questions. And, and then to be in front of a group and have some sort of translator because they have the technology to do that and be able to address each of them. And I mean, think about the differences in human cultures and the things that trip us up talking between human cultures and just, you know, like, oh, well, this culture uses this sign language to mean this. But in this other culture, that's an insult. You know, like there, there's things like that across human cultures. What about aliens? Like maybe some aliens, you never look in the eye, you know, like, but, you know, we don't know that. So you, you're like, oh, well, it's, it's got an eye in the middle of its forehead. I guess that's where I look. And then it wants to kill you, you know, like. There's so much that could happen in this. It's it's really a, a wonderful thing to kind of puzzle about and think about. So um, thanks for taking us through all of that. It was really cool. Of course. And I loved it. I'm glad you brought up communication. I think probably we're going to have to have our own episode about just communication, you know, yeah. and as a general rule of thumb, I found out that it's because of everyone's omni tools in Mass Effect uh-huh. that the different races are able to communicate with each other. It's not because every race somehow speaks English. So. Right. Yeah. It would make it wouldn't make sense. Uh, this is one of those things that you deal with in sci fi and fantasy. You know, these very divergent, intelligent races being able to communicate. Well, how do they do that? We have to have some sort of solution for that. So, yeah, well, very, very cool stuff. What do we what are we coming up on next week? What What's the topic? So I may have given it away already. I've been hinting at it. But next week we're going to cover the rack. And with that, Rachni we're going to be covering the uplifting of the Krogan race because it is integral to the story of the Rachni. So if you'd like to find out about how the Krogans 
become too powerful. How they get uplifted to the point where the Salarians have to create the genophage. Mm-hmm. Tune in next week. Good stuff. Good stuff. And Krogans. We finally get to talk about Krogans. Krogans are fun. All right. Well, guys, thank you for being here with us. We really do appreciate you tuning in. If you've enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Leave us a rating or review and definitely jump on either Twitter and send us a send us a, uh, a comments or just follow us on Twitter and you know share your Mass Effect experience, especially if you're jumping back into the game again. Uh, so at Mass Effect cast on Twitter and check out the Robots Radio Discord. Come talk with us. We'd love to hear from you guys on there. Um, <laughs> Sam, do you have anything else going on that you want to talk about before we go? I know you've got your streams. You've been playing back through the game. Yeah, uh, I'm playing the streams. I'm playing Commander K. Shepard. I love it if some of you stopped by and then followed me. For now, my Xbox gamer tag is still KF space kangaroo. And for now, on Twitch, I'm still kung fu underscore kangaroo. Uh, so please give me a follow. Uh, it will give you a notification whenever I'm live. And whenever I'm going to be streaming, it is going to be Mass Effect 1 for now. And we're going to be going through the decisions and the life and epics. Uh, epic actions of Commander K. Shepard. So that's what I got going on. Um, I will probably be getting more involved, doing more things in the community after I have this big move. I'm, I'm moving to Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, and so it's going to be a big move. My first to the West Coast. Never been to the West Coast before. Very excited about it, but it is taking up a lot of my time. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Uh, it's, a, it's a big life change, but I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Um, well, cool. I've uh, you guys can find me all the regular places. You can check out all the shows on robotsradio.net. We have got a whole bunch of different podcasts, a bunch of lore casts about other other games like Fallout and Elder Scrolls and Dungeons and Dragons and Cyberpunk. So come check out some of those other shows as well. And I uh, I don't only stream these shows live on the twitch.tv slash robots radio channel. I also play games in the afternoons. Um, I've been playing games with my son because he, he has school at home. And after he's done with school, we'll jump into like sea of thieves or something like that and play it together i'm trying to convince him to play some more fallout 76 with me um because i think he would have fun with it even though i think the uh the ghouls and stuff creep him out a little bit he's 10 years old but he's he's a smart kid and he's you know i think i think he'll be all right um (laughs) but yeah come come hang out with me on stream i'm also playing in the evenings and once the once the remake comes out once the legendary edition comes out i will be streaming that as well going through a playthrough and probably designing i my original playthrough i was a femme a female chef and i'll probably have to be a really goofy looking male chef in order to get a different playthrough and i'll try to make decisions that i didn't make the first time although sometimes it's hard sometimes you just want to make a certain decision so i might have to just role play a totally different kind of character um, so we'll see where that goes. It might be, it might end up really silly, but that's kind of how things happen around here sometimes. But guys, thank you for tuning in again. We will see you next week. And until then, try not to, you know, just go opening doors and traveling into places that didn't invite you. <laughs> so we'll see you guys next time. All right. Have a good one. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at MassEffectLorecast at gmail.com. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.
Are you an avid player of the Elder Scrolls Online and looking to take your game to that next level? Well, the Red Diamond Courier Podcast is here to help. I'm Bob Chichinsky. And I'm Dogbark24. We are two experienced players aiming to help others learn and improve through in-game knowledge and references. From PvE to PvP and everything in between. There's sure to be something for you in the Red Diamond Courier. We, we hope, hope you check, check us, us out. out. Thanks. Have you ever wondered how deep the Elder Scrolls lore rabbit hole goes? Have you got a grasp of the basics and want to find out more about the universe? Written in Uncertainty is here to help you. We'll be mixing in philosophy, theology, and whatever other theory is useful with Elder Scrolls texts to untangle some of the biggest questions in the series, like what are Dragon Breaks, how does Chim work, where did the Dwemer go, and more. Check us out at writteninuncertainty.com or find Written in Uncertainty on any podcatcher. Thanks for listening, and catch you later in the grey maybe of Tamriel.